Hello and welcome to episode 2 of A Sinister Spotlight. Tonight I'm joined by my sister Kelsey as we discuss Netflix's four-part docuseries called Evil Genius. So Kelsey, thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me. Evil Genius is about a bizarre and unusual bank robbery in Erie, Pennsylvania, where a man walks into a bank with a collar bomb around his neck. Word of warning, there will be spoilers, so I would recommend watching the documentary before listening to this podcast. So will we just get into it, Kels? Let's do this. The first time I killed somebody, and it was such a rush. Now, Jody gave a number and of it was just prior like to the trial on camera interviews, but it's what she said when she was on Okay, so the first episode starts off by introducing us to a woman by the name of Marjorie Dale Armstrong, describing her by saying she was never what you would call normal. As a child, she was awkward and lonely, but she grew into a smart and beautiful young woman, even earning a master's degree in education. It goes on to say that people found her captivating, especially men. Filmmaker, I don't know how to pronounce his last name, so I'm just going to go for it, uh, Trey Bozzarelli has been speaking to her for over a decade trying to get her to tell the truth about a pizza delivery guy and a crime that became an FBI major case. We then hear an audio clip of her saying, I'm trying to prevent your movie from being a flop. I'm not some evil genius who was greedy and wanted some guy to rob a bank for me. I didn't have anything to do with the goddamn crime. So, what an intriguing start, right? Definitely. The first thing we hear her say is, I'm trying to prevent your movie from being a flop. It's like she's trying to play up to the cameras a bit. Yeah, just putting on a show for them. Yeah, exactly. Over-dramatise what's, what it's about. Yeah, and the thing is, it's not as if this story needs any more dramatisation, does it? Like, Absolutely it's, not. It's insane enough as it is. I think Marjorie is making this more about her than anything. Yeah, she is. It's like she thinks this documentary is, like, I mean, it is in a way about her, but she thinks the whole thing is about her and it's not actually about a bank, the bank heist itself. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, very self, self-absorbed self in that way, I think. Yes. So let's talk about the bank robbery itself. After this introduction to Marjorie, we're taken to the 28th of August 2003 where a 911 call was made alerting authorities of a bank robbery that had just taken place. We then see footage of a man sitting on the ground, surrounded by police officers, with his hands handcuffed behind him and a t-shirt draped around his neck, concealing the bomb that has, guess what this is, written on it. We learn that Brian Wells, a pizza delivery driver, was delivering pizza to an abandoned water tank site when he was ambushed by what he describes as a couple of black guys who put the collar on him and hand him a series of notes and a cane gun and tell him to rob the PNC bank. Brian drove to the bank, which also, by the way, is practically across the road from the police station, and handed the teller a note demanding the sum of $250,000. In the end, he only walked out with approximately 8000 which is what they had in the cash drawers. The police locate him driving down Peach Street, pull him over, and when they realise he has a bomb on him, they secure the area and call the bomb squad. Unfortunately, whilst waiting on the bomb squad to arrive, the bomb detonates, killing Brian Wells. 
the first time I watched this, like I wasn't properly paying attention. And when the bomb went off, I was like, holy fuck, what has just happened? We are literally 15 minutes into the first episode and a man has just been blown up. I I had to like put it right back to the start and like put my phone down and watch it again. I was just gripped. I was exactly the same. Like I was probably paying way too much attention to my phone rather than the episode itself. But I think it's when like the you hear the bomb start ticking. Yeah. Like and obviously it gets faster and faster. I noticed I was paying less attention to my phone and more attention to the episode. Yeah. And then obviously we get to see what we see. Oh god, yeah. So that's a a thing you see like it's like one second clip but you see the bomb going off and like Brian's body kind of jilting back with the impact and wow I did not expect to see it I thought it was maybe going to be a bomb ticking and then a cut to black so that's what I thought as well but then you you actually get to see it and it's like as gruesome as it is it reels you in more you're like oh my god what else we want to get to see in this episode yeah so The FBI take point on the investigation with assistance from the state police and ATF, but there's very little forensic evidence to go on. They actually even had to surgically remove Brian's head in order to preserve the collar bomb. This investigation was going to rely on witness testimony. Witnesses in the bank claim that Brian appeared calm, even waiting in line first before deciding to skip the queue, and he takes a lollipop from the basket on the counter. Another witness described him walking out looking like Charlie Chaplin, swinging the bag and cane around. So this is really unusual behaviour for someone who's just been abducted and told to rob a bank with a bomb strapped to him. Yeah, it's it's very unusual. Like, any normal person, like, say what's myself or you, we would be, like, sweating buckets and probably be crying at this point. We wouldn't be thinking about taking a fucking lollipop, let's be honest. Yeah, true. (laughs) I don't think me and you are the prime example of normal, but (laughs) I get what you mean. Normal behaviour. Normal (laughs) behaviour. Nah, but you're right, though. It's it's true. Like, in that situation, you would be... You would just be on edge, like, the whole time. And he, he even waits in line at first, and then he goes, oh, wait, hang on a minute. And then he goes to the front of the queue. Like, just very bizarre behaviour from him. Yeah, it's really weird, isn't it? I don't know what to make of it at that point. No, um, me neither. So, the investigators interview people at the pizzeria, um, Brian's workplace, and also check out the site he was sent to to deliver the pizzas. Tire tracks and shoe prints can place him at the scene, and there was also indications of a struggle. Three days later, after the heist, a news report reveals that another employee at the pizzeria, Robert Panetti, had been found dead in his apartment. Investigators look into a possible connection as Panetti's behaviour reportedly changed after Brian's death. He was extremely nervous and even claimed that the people who did this would be coming for him next. The autopsy concluded his death was caused by a drug overdose, which could either be an accidental overdose or a possible suicide. Weird, but I don't know what to make of this at this point. And no, neither did I. Like, it was strange that they were both obviously dead. Work, both work at the same place, yeah. dead within three days of each other. Very strange, like circumstances. You just think it can't be a coincidence, but yeah. what is what is the connection? Okay, so the bomb itself. Investigators created a replica of the bomb, and we learned that it's homemade and would have taken approximately a month to assemble in someone's spare time. Although it looked sophisticated, it was actually nothing more than two pipe bombs connected to a timer. A pin was pulled out which started the timer and gave Brian about 50 minutes before it would detonate. It was held on by a collar which looked like a huge handcuff and worked in the same way. The collar had four keyholes on it and a tubular lock, 
However, only two locks were actually keeping it locked to Brian, so two keys would have successfully unlocked the collar, allowing Brian to remove it. The back plate of the bomb was scored, and it's believed that this was done in order for the metal to shrapnel once the bomb went off. However, because the scoring wasn't deep enough, this never happened. It did fracture though, and the injuries this caused was ultimately what killed Brian. One of the most unusual things about the bomb was it had several red herrings in it, like a mobile phone that did nothing and wires that weren't connected to anything. Another thing was that it had another pin in it and if it had been pulled out, it would have activated a second timer which would have delayed the bomb detonating by one hour. One of the weirdest things I thought was the bomb had so many handwritten warning labels on it. One label listed actions that would detonate the bomb, things like trying to pry open the case or remove the collar without the keys, would detonate it instantly and other labels referred to booby traps installed on the bomb. It was a very unusual contraption. So, moving on from that, one of the most bizarre things about this robbery for me was the notes that Brian was given. A normal note would be short and say something like, I have a bomb, give me $250,000, but the notes Brian were given were nine pages long. They were a series of instructions for Brian to follow, as well as a note to hand to the bank teller and even one for the police. The notes sent Brian on a scavenger hunt in order to get the keys to get the bomb off him. As well as being lengthy, they included drawings of diagrams and maps on them. On the day of the robbery, police follow the scavenger hunt and at the second checkpoint, a state trooper sees a blue minivan in the distance coming towards them, but it stops, turns around and leaves. Later on, investigators tried to determine whether Brian could complete the scavenger hunt in time and they concluded it was impossible. Brian's landlord is interviewed in the first episode and she mentions that Brian loved scavenger hunts and would do the key hunt in the newspaper. This suggests to me that, you know, this wasn't random, Brian was probably targeted and that his death was intended. So I think it's fair to say that this is a very, very, very bizarre bank robbery. I don't even know what to make of it. Yeah, it's really weird. Another thing about it was, I think it's the news, a news reporter who's been interviewed, he was saying, you know, if you're going to rob the PNC bank, the way to do it is to rob it, get on the highway and get out of state because you're literally 20 minutes away from being in like in either state. So you could essentially rob it, get into another state and you would avoid detection within be 20 gone, minutes. Basically. Yeah. Be so, gone. you know, this essentially it's kind of not an easy one to rob, but if you're ever going to do it, this is the way to do it. But yet the bank robber sent... Brian on this deranged scavenger hunt with a bomb strapped to him and it kind of goes round in circles I'm sure like yeah it, it goes around like four checkpoints or something and yeah. it just goes around a, a circle and it's like what's yeah what's the purpose of that like what's the need for that um so yeah that to me makes it think that although a bank robbery was a motive here another motive was killing Brian yeah he was not intended to survive yeah definitely okay so after this this is the bit that you've kind of looked into for us. So do you want to Do you want to run with this bit? Do you want to tell us a bit about this? Yeah, that'd be great. At the end of episode one, we're brought to another collage of photos of Marjorie and a voiceover talking about Marjorie's mental illnesses over the years. It then states that the men in her life don't seem to last very long. Her husband, Richard Armstrong, died after falling and hitting his head off their coffee table. She sued the hospital for negligence and won a $175,000 settlement. Before her husband was buried, she asked for a piece of his leg bone in case she was able to clone him in the future. A news reporter claims there's at least five men in her life who have died in strange circumstances. 
We then hear a 911 call from a man by the name of Bill Rothstein alerting authorities to a body in the freezer in his garage and that there's a woman in his property they might want to talk to. This woman is Marjorie. This phone call is made only three weeks after the bank robbery. At first I was wondering, like, what has this got to do with the bank robbery? I was exactly the same. But, like, we get shown a map of where Bill's house is and obviously the body. And it's basically just like kicking the arse away from the abandoned water tower. And obviously, like, where Brian was sent with pizzas and ambushed. Yeah. The second episode focuses on the investigation into the body in the freezer. Bill is interviewed by the police and he tells them that Marjorie shot and killed her boyfriend, Jim Roden, and asked him to get rid of the body for her, which he agrees to do because he feels sorry for her. He tells her he'll take it to his house and stick it in the freezer until he figures out what to do. When Marjorie is arrested, she claims that it was Bill who killed Jim because he was jealous of him. And now he's framing her because if Bill can't have her, nobody can. Bill and Marjorie dated when she was 21 and he was infatuated with her. They were on and off, but she eventually ended it for good and tells of how he wanted to do preferred things to her and she was not okay with that. A major eye-opener in this is that we learn that Marjorie had been on trial for murder in 1984 for the shooting and killing of her boyfriend who was asleep on the couch. She was acquitted of all charges as she claimed self-defence. I'd have loved to have seen that trial. Like, how on earth can you claim self-defence when he was asleep on the couch? I think she claimed self-defence because she was in a dangerous loving situation with him and she was in fear of her life. She maybe felt like the only way out was to kill him while he slept, but still, like, the fact that she got away with it. For me, was she even in a dangerous loving situation? Like, who knows, but... She was even reported to say to friends afterwards, I shot that motherfucker six times and got away with it, and then claimed (laughs) self-defence. One thing about Marjorie, though, like, is that she'd been seen by a number of psychiatrists in her lifetime and was diagnosed with several different mental health conditions, such as bipolar disorder, mania, pressured speech. But one psychiatrist actually suggested that she wasn't even mentally ill and that she was just a narcissist and suffered from a personality disorder. Like, the issue of whether or not she was actually mentally competent to stand trial for this case is a concern that we hear from um, her lawyer at the time, who represented her. He says that representing her was one of the worst experiences of his life and that she should never have stood trial because she should have been institutionalised as she was a danger to society and it would only be a matter of time before she did it again. Like, genuinely, that, that is just such a chilling thing to hear from a man who represented her. Yeah, exactly. It's so bad, eh? Like, definitely. So, so back to the Roden case. Police interview a friend of Marjorie and Jim called Ken Barnes who informs them that Jim would do anything for Marjorie because she had this hold over him but they would often have physical and violent arguments, mostly started by Marjorie. Ken asked Jim why he lets her do this and he said that because she's bipolar it's easier just to let her have it out and wait for her to calm down. In January 2004 at the preliminary hearing, Bill testifies that Marjorie killed Jim after an argument about money and the judge orders Marjorie to stand trial. But Bill cut a deal where he would only spend a few years in jail on misdemeanour charges, such as abusing a corpse, and he would get to be out on bail until his sentencing. Bill dies of cancer a year and a half later. Months after Bill's death, in a shock twist, Marjorie confesses to killing Jim. She requests a plea deal claiming she wasn't in the right frame of mind when she killed him. She had told fellow inmates that they argued about another woman. In an on-screen interview, which was part of the deal Trey made with Marjorie in exchange for legal aid, She says she shot and killed Jim because he was threatening to kill her over the past 10 years and that she'd finally reached her breaking point. 
She says that this case has nothing to do with bank robbery and Brian Wells' death. So let's talk about the connection between the two cases and other key moments in the investigation. Marjorie informs the FBI of a roommate who was living with Bill, Floyd Stockton, who moved out the day after the heist. He was an old friend of Bill's, but was on the run from the law as he was wanted in another state for the rape of a disabled teenage girl. Marjorie claims that he told her he needed to go because there was too much heat around this case and he couldn't risk getting caught. FBI managed to locate him and make him and Bill go through a polygraph test. However, they both pass it, so the FBI clear them both as suspects in the heist. However, Jerry Clark, one of the FBI investigators, isn't convinced that they're innocent. Another thing is that after the preliminary hearing in the Jim Roden case, reporters are following Marjorie being taken from the courtroom and she exclaims that Bill is a filthy liar and she's going to sue him. She also publicly claims that Bill should be arrested for the death of Brian Wells, but police or FBI never ask her about this. It's at this point Trey reaches out to Marjorie by writing her a letter asking questions about the bank robbery and the death of Brian Wells. She responds a week later stating that she's very familiar with the case and that she will share secrets that nobody else knew if Trey would get her legal aid for the pending Jim Roden case. Another thing is, whilst Bill is being interviewed for the Roden case, the FBI asked to interview him to see if there's any connection between this case and the bank robbery case. When Jerry Clark introduces himself, Bill says, I want you to know right off the top that I'm the smartest man in this room. And when Jerry tries to talk to him about the robbery and death of Brian, Bill folds his arms, shakes his head and says, nope, I won't talk about that. Bill's behaviour here is like so unusual. Like he looked like such a child in a huff when he folded his arms and was like shaking his head like from side to side. His actions here, I think, definitely cast suspicion on him because if he didn't know anything about the robbery, then you would just say something like, oh, I'm sorry, I don't understand what this has to do with that or I don't know anything about that. Yeah, I totally agree. Like another thing is when Bill does a crime scene walkthrough uh, for the Roden case, he tells police that he planned to kill himself and asked if they got his suicide note. The first thing the note says is, this has nothing to do with the Wales case. Police question him at the scene why he wrote this, and he claims it's because he expected them to tie it to the robbery and Brian's death, and didn't want them to waste years investigating possible connections. Now, if you're contemplating suicide, you really wouldn't be thinking about that? Yeah, yeah. It's very, very strange. Yeah, definitely. It's like he's almost trying to steer suspicion away from him. Yeah, but... Failing. Failing miserably. And by writing that, if he'd not mentioned that at all, like... It would, wouldn't have bothered. Yeah, exactly. Like, it just puts way more suspicion on it, him. He's completely counteracted what he wants to do. Yeah, exactly. Um, before the heist, Bill was tied up in a family feud. His brother and sister wanted to sell their parents' house that he was living in rent-free since their parents died. Bill told his siblings that he put the house on the market for $90,000, but he'd actually listed it for $250,000. So, really, here we have a possible motive for him to rob the bank, as the bank robbers were demanding the sum of $250,000. Seems a bit too coincidental for me. Yeah, definitely. I have to agree with that. Marjorie is asked in the on-screen interview why they put Jim's body in the freezer, and she says that that was Bill's idea. And he said he couldn't take it out until he was finished with his business project. She then goes on to say that she later finds out that this business project is in fact the bank robbery. 
We also learn that Marjorie wrote to the state police at the same time as writing to Trey and tried to bargain with them, claiming she had information on a cold case involving her friend Ken Barnes, which she would divulge in exchange for a transfer to a prison closer to her attorney and her money. However, this information was nothing but rumours, so she then claimed to know that Bill Rothstein was involved in the bank heist and that there was someone else involved, but she wouldn't tell them how she knew this information. The state police informed the FBI who go through all of her possessions and found correspondence from the PNC bank as she had complained to them for letting her father empty a safety deposit box that contained valuable items belonging to her mother that she was supposed to inherit. Marjorie manages to manipulate the FBI into getting her transfer, but once she's transferred, she just continued to implicate Bill, but not actually provide any evidence or testimony that could prove he was involved. So here we have a possible motive for Marjorie being involved in the bank robbery. Perhaps she had an axe to grind with the PNC bank for letting her father empty the safety deposit box. That also seems very suspicious to me. Definitely. In the summer of 2005, two years after the heist, eyewitnesses come forward and can place Marjorie in the area at the time of the bank robbery. One witness claims she was driving down the wrong side of the highway and another witness places her and Bill at the petrol station where the call was made to the pizza place. Another thing, fellow inmates also come forward and claim she said she killed Jim because he was going to blow the lid on the planned heist. Kelly Michaela, an inmate, would actually write notes on what Marjorie would say and she turned these over to the police. The notes had information on the Jim Roden case and the bank heist. However, these were never turned over to the FBI until later on. Marjorie had told Kelly that Bill built the bomb, that Floyd Stockman was definitely involved and that the heist was linked to the Roden case. More astoundingly, referring to Brian Wells, she says, it's not like we didn't measure his neck for the collar, and laughed. That's just mental, eh? Like, she's, this is, she's totally implicating herself in the bank robbery here. Uh, absolutely, like, there's, there's no doubt in my mind that she's involved now. Yeah, absolutely. And um, because witnesses place her at the scene, she confirms that she was there, but it had nothing to do with the robbery. She claims she was out shopping at the time. Jerry Clark and Jason Wick, the ATF special agent on the case, take Marjorie on a vehicle ride to determine her movements on the day of the heist and during this ride she divulges that Bill asked her for two kitchen timers, which we know are part of the bomb. The press never had this information so she would have only known about the timers being significant if she was involved. After this comment she refuses to speak any more to them. That's just too... Yeah, it just like, again confirms it for me. Yeah, definitely, me too. Another thing is that Trey drives to Erie to try and interview Bill, but Bill refuses to speak with him, so Trey goes back to his car and takes some video shots of Bill's house, and outside of it we can see a blue minivan. Trey shows the state trooper the footage, and the state trooper says it looks exactly like the one he saw at the second checkpoint of the scavenger hunt on the day of the bank robbery. Marjorie claims in one of her interviews that Bill had the minivan towed away the day after the heist and only got it towed back once he was cleared as a suspect. The investigation found a link between Ken Barnes and Brian Wells, a prostitute called Jessica Hoopsick. Brian would often drive Jessica to Ken's so she could buy cocaine, so they interview Jessica but she denies knowing anything and refuses to speak any further. They then interview Ken who claims to know nothing about the heist but provides them with a motive as to why Marjorie would be involved. He claims she approached him and asked him to kill her father and when he said that would cost her, she came up with the idea to rob a bank and asked him to be a part of it. 
This is something we learned he told police back in 2003. However, again, the police never turned this information over to the FBI. Jason Wick speculates the reason the police never turned this over was due to a turf war between them. Marjorie's response to this is, I've killed two boyfriends in in self-defence. Would I need to hire someone to kill my dad? Be reasonable. That statement really got me, like, as if a reasonable justification for her not asking someone to kill her dad was because she's killed two men already. Like, that, even just that statement, she's fumbling on herself. She says, I've killed two boyfriends, and then going, oh, in self-defence. It was so, she totally tripped herself up. She totally did, and it's also a bit like she's gloating about it as well, like, yeah. I already killed two people. I don't need some man to kill people for me, like you independent exactly, woman, you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you independent murderous woman. Um, the thing is, like, one of the things that really got to me in this part was when Trey went to see her dad, and he obviously tells him about how she planned to murder him, and he doesn't even seem, like, phased about it. Like, no, he doesn't, does he? Like, it's another normal day in the life of Marjorie. Yeah, he's like, just totally like, yeah. What was it he said? I think he says... She, you know, she doesn't know the meaning of love and stuff like that. And I think, and she, he says that she's out of his will and stuff because once she started getting in trouble with the law, he was like, I'm not, like, he kind of cut off from her sort of thing. And he was giving away the money and things to neighbours to be friendly and just to give him his life a purpose. And Marjorie was, she was aware of this and that's why she wanted him bumped off. Yeah, like, it's just, it's so sad to hear that. Like, yeah. For her dad's side at least like yeah definitely. imagine thinking your daughter's like that i know that like and it's their only child as well like it's, exactly. it's not like he's got others which is yeah it's just awful definitely so a major twist in the story is that at the end of episode three ken actually confesses to the police on the 9th of december 2005 that he knew all about the bank robbery scheme and he claims that marjorie was the mastermind we hear an audio clip of him saying She said, here comes Brian. And I said, well, let me see him then. And then she said, here comes Rothstein. And I seen his car pulling down the street. As she was looking down there, she goes, ha ha ha, looks like somebody just robbed a bank. So that's mental. Like, absolutely. Yeah. Just. But let's, let's see where this goes. Episode four starts with detailing Ken's confession. He claims that there was a pre-robbery meeting the day before the heist and the people present were himself, Marjorie, Bill, Floyd Stockton, Bill's roommate, Robert Panetti, the second pizza place employee who died of a drug overdose, and Brian Wells himself. Ken was supposed to be the lookout, so Marjorie went to his house just before noon and told him today was the day. He asked where Jim was as he was supposed to be the getaway driver and she said he's in bed with the flu. But we know that he's dead and his body is in a freezer in the garage. They go to the Shell station where they meet Bill and Bill made the call to order pizza. They then went from there to the water tower site to wait for Brian to arrive. Once he arrived, Floyd came out of the building with the bomb and at that point Brian looked terrified and started to run. Ken hit him and told him to stop being a puss. Then Bill fired a warning shot in the air and told Brian he wasn't going anywhere. Marjorie and Ken tackled him down and put the bomb on him. Brian exclaimed that he didn't want to do this, then Marjorie put the t-shirt on that concealed the bomb and someone handed him the notes. Marjorie said to him, if you happen to get caught, then tell them some black guys held you down and put the bomb on you. That won't bring any heat to us. They then gave him the cane shotgun and told him to use that if he had any trouble. 
They then went to the Eaton Park across the road from the bank and observed the bank being robbed through binoculars, then left when the police started to come in. Ken claims that when he got home and saw on the TV that the bomb had went off and Brian was dead, he felt bad because the bomb was supposed to be fake. He concludes that Bill and Marjorie must have decided between them to make it a real bomb. When Marjorie is asked to respond to Ken's confession, she claims that Ken is lying about her involvement so he can get 23 years knocked off his sentence. In light of Ken's confession, the FBI re-interview Floyd Stockton, who is now in prison for the rape charge, and he knew he was cornered, so he got his lawyer to get him a deal, immunity for testifying against Marjorie. On the 9th of July 2007, four years after the heist, the DA files charges against Marjorie and Ken for the bank robbery. They also release a statement claiming that Brian is both a willing participant in the robbery and a victim, and therefore will be listed as an unindicted co-conspirator. This means that murder charges and the death penalty cannot be brought against anyone for Brian's death, as he knew and was involved in the bank robbery. Like, this must be so devastating for the family, knowing that they're never going to get a conviction against the people that done this to him. Yeah. They essentially murdered him and they're getting away with it. Yeah, I know. It must... Does it even bear thinking about? No. In 2010, Marjorie is found guilty on all charges, specifically conspiracy to commit armed bank robbery, armed bank robbery in which death resulted, and use of a destructive device. In February 2011, she's sentenced to life plus 30. Although the case was now closed, there were still so many unanswered questions, the biggest one being, was Brian actually involved? I really like, we went through this whole charade of all this and... It's probably the biggest overhanging question. Yeah, it is. Do you think he was involved? Oh, it, at this point, yeah. As horrible as it is to say, I think he was involved. Um, I think he definitely knew about the robbery and he was a part of it. He was going to be a part of it. But I don't think he knew there was going to be a bomb. And I think that scared him and that's why he then wanted to back out of it. But it was too late. Um, For me... Although he knew about it and planned to do it, he then wanted to back out. So I feel like he should have, he shouldn't have been listed as like an unindicted co-conspirator. He should have got some kind of justice. Yeah, definitely. Like he knew things were going tits up, basically. Yeah. At the end of the day, he he died from this, and there was a point before this he wanted to back out. Yeah. So I feel that was enough that he should have got justice. Yeah. But yeah, I, unfortunately, I do think he was aware of it and he was involved. Trey decided to continue conversing with Marjorie as he had planned to ask her if Brian was actually involved when the time was right. In the summer of 2013, once she had exhausted all of her appeals, he approached her and asked her, hoping that now she would reveal the truth as she has nothing to gain from lying anymore. She still denies being involved and becomes very angry with Trey at this point. Months later, Marjorie informs Trey that Jessica Hoopsick, the prostitute that was connected to Brian and Ken, had been placed in the same prison as her. Trey writes to Jessica as he believes she knows more about the bank robbery than she's let on. Once Jessica is out, she agrees to an on-camera interview with Trey and confesses that she was involved. Jessica's story is that she went into Ken's house and he was there with Bill and Marjorie and they were discussing a bank robbery. They ask her to find a guy they could scare into robbing a bank in exchange for $5,000. 
A few days later, she was high and phoned Ken asking if he would give her some of the money up front if she gave him the name of the guy they could use. He told her he'd give her some cocaine, to which she agrees to, so she goes round and tells him to use Brian Wells because he's a pushover. She then set up to take Brian to Ken's the following week so they could see him for themselves. She gives them his work schedule and the next day Marjorie gives her $1,500. Jessica also claims that the robbery was supposed to take place the second week in August. However, this was cancelled as Marjorie has something she needed to do. Like, I mean, we could probably relate this now to Jim Roden's death. Yeah, there's no way it couldn't have been. Like, this, the bank case has definitely been cancelled because Jim Roden's been murdered. Yeah, definitely. For sure. Trey phones Ken and confronts him with this information, and he insists that Jessica is lying, but we start to see his story falling apart. Trey asks why Brian was waiting to be paid for the pizzas if he knew he was being summoned there to take part in the heist. This is something that's mentioned throughout the docuseries. Trey also asks again if there's a pre-heist meeting to which Ken says no, despite claiming in his confession in 2005 that there was and that Brian was at it. Trey then decides to confront Marjorie with Jessica's confession and here's how the conversation went down. Um, Kelsey, do you want to read Trey's lines and I'll read out Marjorie's? Yeah, sure. So, I was told that when Brian Wells arrived on August 28th, he arrived and he was looking to be paid for the pizzas. Okay, now also... Who told you that? Who do you think? Barnes. Yeah. When are you going to learn that Barnes is making up shit? Why do you want to whitewash Brian Wells? That's what I want to know. First of all, he was a co-conspirator. And when you're a co-conspirator, there can't be a death penalty case anyway. I don't know why you want to believe these goddamn asshole losers and you don't want to believe me. I was never in their fucking category, period. I am not some evil genius who is greedy and wanted some guy that looks retarded to rob a bank for me. I don't even know this guy. You're an asshole if you think otherwise. This guy was innocent and you guys wanted to avoid the death penalty. I know this. First of all, you are totally wrong. I am not you guys. And if you say otherwise in this movie, I will sue your fucking balls off. I don't have anything to do with the goddamn crime. The docuseries then ends with a voiceover from Trace saying that for the rest of Marjorie's life, she would insist that she was innocent. She dies of cancer on the 4th of April 2017 and is buried in an unmarked grave. Okay, so for me, there's no way that Marjorie wasn't involved. And the reason she's so adamant on Brian being involved, even though she claims that she wasn't involved in the bank robbery, is because she's not stupid and she knows that there's no statute of limitations on murder. So if Brian was to be found not a willing participant in the robbery, then murder charges could be brought against any of the bank robbery participants and ultimately then the death penalty. Marjorie's obviously clearly fearful that she would get the death penalty and so was Ken, which is why he was insistent that the prostitute, Jessica, is lying. Like, that makes complete sense. Yeah. Like, for her to avoid getting the death penalty... What, just deny it till she's blown in the face, basically. Yeah, because when we were first going through this, I was wondering, you know, she's saying she's not involved, so why is she so adamant on Brian being involved kind of thing? Yeah. But this is why. It's because she doesn't want she doesn't want the death penalty. Another thing that really bugs me about this whole thing was Floyd Stockton, the roommate. He's now living in Washington State and is married. Like, who the fuck is marrying this creepy bastard? Um, he declines to be interviewed for the documentary, so I really hope that after this murder charges do get brought against the bank robbery participants 
because he's you know he's testified against marjorie you know saying that he's a willing participant but she was the mastermind and he's been you know he's been given immunity for that but if a murder case was to be brought forward he's already admitted that he was a part of the robbery so i reckon he would end up getting charged with murder as well and quite frankly he deserves it yeah definitely like it's just, he's just a horrible human being. Yeah. He's a poor excuse for one, actually. Yeah, definitely is. Like, he's... he Obviously, he served time for the rape of the disabled teenager, which, quite rightfully so, but he's avoided everything with regards to the bank case. Yeah. Like, one of the saddest things we've learned at the end of this is that Jessica has given birth to a baby eh, not long after the heist, and she does believe that it's Brian's. Oh, that is just awful, eh? Like... I really do hope that she's right and that it is his because it's just... More for the family, I suppose. Like, yeah. At least then this way, you know, they, it's like they kind of have a part of Brian still. Yeah. Um, yeah. But again, this is it's such a shame. Like, if he, if Jessica's baby is Brian's because he, you know, we now know he wasn't a willing participant in this at all. He was literally a victim and he... Has not he's now suffered and that he doesn't even get to see his child grow up. Yeah, it's just horrible. Yeah. Absolutely horrible. It's just brutal, eh? Um so I me, I love this documentary. I thought it was just gripping from start to finish. Um what about you? Like what what would you say? Like It definitely had me hooked. Yeah. Definitely. Um I'm also one of the ones that like, I like looking at the mental state of people and just listening to everything that's yeah. going on with Marjorie and how she can play so dumb, but also she's very smart about yeah, it. Yeah, she is a very intelligent woman. I don't know... Was. Yeah, <laughs> Yeah. She... I don't know if I believe... If... I don't know if she's mentally ill or if she was narcissist. Yeah. I, I can't... Like, I'm not an expert in that field. I have no idea. But regardless of her mental health conditions like even if she was you know bipolar and things the way that she conducts herself in this whole thing you know you can be bipolar and not do this stuff you know absolutely so regardless of if she does have mental health issues or not she's she is an evil bitch (laughs) i was gonna say evil genius but i don't even want to brand her with the the name genius don't give her the credit for that that's horrible she is (laughs) For me, I don't think she was the only mastermind. I think this was her and Bill. Yeah, this like, was because he was definitely smart as well. Yeah, he was a very smart person too. I think that the two of them together could have concocted this easily. Yeah, I think they did. I think it was a fifty-fifty. Anybody else involved were basically fucking scapegoats. I think. Yeah, and they were just they were a means to an Puppets. end. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree with that. The thing is, like. They are really smart people, but they're also so fucking dumb. Like, if they'd all just kept their mouths shut, Bill, Marjorie, Ken, then they would have gotten away with this bank heist because there was no forensic evidence. They totally couldn't have gotten away with it, but because they all just didn't have the ability to shut their mouth, this is how they ended up getting caught. So, if we were giving it a five-star rating, what, what would you give it? I would probably have to give it a five. Five, yeah. yeah. Do you know what? If the lowest I could give it would be a 4.5. Yeah. For me, I think I'm going to have to go and say it's a five. Yeah, definitely. I think it was very well done. It didn't drag on or anything like that. Mm. It didn't. It wasn't covering old ground all the time like a lot of them can. It was straight to the point and 
brilliantly executed. Absolutely. So I think that sums it all up. Um, thanks again, Kelsey, for joining me. I hope you've enjoyed it. You're most welcome. I've enjoyed every second. Good. Um, also want to say a big thank you to everyone who's tuned in for this episode, but also to everyone that tuned in to episode one. I was honestly like overwhelmed with the amount of support that everyone showed me. Um, I expected maybe like 10 people to listen to it and those 10 people being my pals that I was like, right, listen to this, listen to this. <laughs> um, but it's actually had about 90 listens on it. So um, yeah, what the hell? Like that's mental. Um, so thank you again. Um, if you want to follow me on social media, I'm on Facebook and Instagram. You can find me by searching for A Sinister Spotlight. And if anybody wants to recommend a documentary or a story or would even maybe like to guest star in the podcast, then drop me a message and let me know. So thanks again for listening and I hope to see you all again for the next episode. Bye. Cheerio. <laughs> <laughs> hey, is that to you keep that or not? You've been listening to another great podcast from the Fair City Podcast Network, a group dedicated to connecting and developing podcasts. Check out fcpod.net for more great podcasts and content.